Um, I'm presenting this Easter message in a, in a really a four-part series. Uh, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday messages were, were put online, and, and they capture the story of the Last Supper and the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. And uh, like I said, they're both available online. They both contain a, a, quite a bit of scripture and commentary to describe the events of the week. And today is Resurrection Sunday. The world calls it Easter. And we'll be talking about facing death like Jesus did and what we can learn from his statements from the cross. I called it famous last words. And since we will not get through the entirety of the story of the resurrection this morning, I want to encourage you to join us again next week for the rest of the story. And if you can't make it in person, then certainly online as we talk about what comes next. And the Sunday following Easter, this is, I didn't realize there were actually days for this. Did you know that there was a Spy Wednesday? It's, it's an Eastern Methodist thing and a Catholic thing. Spy Wednesday. We had Trove Tuesday, Shrove Tuesday. There's all these holidays. They aren't hallmark. These are legitimate things. But the Sunday after Easter is called Divine Mercy Sunday or Octave Day of Easter, which makes sense. White Sunday, Quasimodo Sunday. I haven't figured that one out yet. Bright Sunday or Low Sunday. And, and there's kind of a challenge, right? Because Lent's been coming and we've been building up and we've been on this series for Lent and we're talking about being intentional and being all in. And, and then we've got all the events of this week, right? We've got, you know, um, Thursday, the, the Last Supper and all the, the wonderful things that were shared um, in Scripture, the Last Supper and the crucifixion and, and, and then, of course, Sunday morning as he has risen. And it's really easy to come off of this high, right? We, we, we come to church and then, oh, what's next? You know, it's, well, we'll keep the, the white banners up for a couple more weeks. But there's this kind of this lull, kind of like there is after Christmas, but one of, the, one of the challenges to really keep that momentum going, so I kind of shifted, like I said, the rest of this message into next week so we can carry this message forward into the, into the rest of the year. But one of our uh, local churches does this thing, and, and you can think what you want about its reverence, but they call it Holy Humor Sunday, right? We will not be doing it, but they literally basically have stand-up day at church. Because they're going to make fun of death. They're going to make fun of Satan. You got it handed to you. Jesus defeated you. He defeated death. We're opening up the mic for clean jokes. Well, the clean joke part was implied. Uh, but they call it Holy Humor Sunday. I might actually tune into that and I'll maybe show you some highlights. But, but, our, but as we look into next week, we're going to talk about this gracious gift of new life. And albeit it's the same mission that Jesus came and started. We talked about that last week with, we called it mission possible. The thing he came to do that he asked us to continue on. And our responsibilities for the newfound freedom from sin and the law as described in Galatians 5. And that's gonna be our focus next week. And then we're gonna to shift to a series of, of a string of key focuses for our life. They're gonna be based on the focus of Jesus' life and what he modeled. We're gonna talk about being a word-centered life, right? This is in scripture, and we have to start here because if we don't, then nothing else matters and nothing else will make sense if we don't start by opening up God's word and seeing what it says about the things that we need to be doing and believing. And then we're gonna talk about a prayer-centered life because if we don't learn to talk and just as importantly to listen to God, then it's gonna be, we're gonna have trouble getting through the sense of, of what we think we're being told. And then we're gonna have a spirit-centered life. And we're gonna talk about the good kind of surrender and then we're going to go back and circle back to where we started the year with, which is intentional living. That's how to be doers of this stuff, right? Not just we hear it, not just we believe, but what do we do with it as a next step? And in the middle of this, we're going to honor our mothers, right? May, May 8th is, is Mother's Day. 
And, and if we do all this just right, this is going to bring us right to the Memorial Day holiday, right? And I love being a planner. Am I a planner? I drive her nuts. I am a planner. But there's a problem with being a planner. My wife's in the front row giving me the looks, if that means. <laughs> um, you see, I've been working on this morning's message for a few weeks, and, and I intended to present good news of the gospel as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for those who accepted this wonderful gift of grace. It's, it's a typical Sunday feel-good message. And the problem with preparing, or at least assigning a title so far in advance, is sometimes things happen, right? We have world events, or we need to shift the focus, or, or something's revealed that, that kind of disrupts the careful, thoughtful plan that I had made. And isn't that the way of life? You know, Seven years ago, I was swearing I'd never set another foot in church, and I would never get married again, right? That's right. Love you too. Um, I'm glad that she smiled at that one. <laughs> um, but I was prepared to talk a, a, a about the last few moments of Jesus' life and how he faced death and what we can learn from uh, with the focus being on the last few moments of his life. But I watched the Passion of the Christ movie with friends on Friday night, and I was reminded of his suffering and the horrible manner by which he was killed. Now, if you haven't watched that, it's a graphic movie. It's as graphic as anything you can see. And what makes that so hard is because it's based on a true story. It's not fiction. Now, some of it might have been dramatized a, a touch uh, with the dialogue to explain some things. But the graphic nature that he was beaten and killed was, is, is very accurate. And I won't, I won't go into that this morning too much detail, but, but it, it was hard to watch. And, and as we're sitting there watching this, I'm thinking, you know, it's getting late. And I'm like, we need to stay through this because we cannot let ourselves off easy because we're part of the reason he went through that. And we should stay and watch that. So as I'm watching this, I was reminded, you know, I was reminded we can't skip over the powerful parts of the message just because they're uncomfortable or unpleasant to watch or to hear or to think about. And the resurrection further proved who Jesus is as the son of God. But the crucifixion, his death, is an important part because, two, it revealed who Jesus is as the Savior. He went through that for a purpose. And as I reflected on this, I realized that it was an important part of the story and needs to be told in order to depict the stark contrast from the reception that he received at the beginning of the week when he entered the city, right? On donkey and the palm branches, and they're yelling, Hosanna, you know, hooray for this man who's come to save us. And, and, and then an even more pronounced contrast in the way that he lived his life from the way he was treated and punished. It also serves to set and illustrate the ugly vileness of sin. To that end, the emotional ups and downs of that holy week can some way seem similar to the emotional ups and downs we feel in our lives, right? We have our high moments, we have our low moments. And in order to truly appreciate some of the, the good moments, you, you have to have some of those valley moments, right? And to understand that those valley moments aren't forever, you have some of those mountaintop experiences as well. And so I think it's important to see what Jesus went through and how he suffered in order to understand what he returned from and what he endured to help us today. And I often wonder what happened that made the crowds that greeted him on the streets in Jerusalem shouting Hosanna change to this angry mob that was calling for his torture and his death. I mean, it is possible these are two separate groups, and it's likely they were. And it's hard to say which group was the majority, but it certainly seemed that each group was louder at certain crucial points in history. 
the supporters were there, right, cheering him on as he came in. But those who, who were against him were certainly vocal in front of the Sanhedrin and, and when it came time for this trial. And maybe the absence of the dissenters was because they didn't want to honor Jesus, right? I'm not going to show up and honor him with my presence as he comes in. And, and maybe the silence of the disciples at the trial was because of this overwhelming grief that they were feeling. Or, or simply out of fear of being implicated with Jesus, right? Don't we, aren't we afraid sometimes to speak up because of how we're going to be judged? I mean, that's exactly what happened to Peter. And perhaps the noise of one crowd kept the other group away. Do you think we do this today? Is it possible that, that we're so afraid that, that someone will judge us or tell us we're wrong or we're, we're infringing on their rights to not believe that, that we're afraid to face that crowd or be, being among it? Are we being influenced by the noise of those who don't follow Jesus or, or even those who don't think we should talk about him or more likely, are you being influenced by your own hesitation and timidness to share the gospel? And that's, that's something to consider. But I want to digress and get back to this morning's message. This Easter morning, we're going to look at the last words of Jesus Christ, specifically seven statements that he made and the circumstances surrounding them. They reveal much about his character, and we have much to learn by the way that Jesus, Jesus faced death. And in order to understand the context, let's start with the stories recorded in the accounts of the Gospels. So I will be reading a little bit this morning from the Gospel. Most of the story is captured in the Good Friday message that's online. But in Matthew 27, I'm going to start at verse 26. It says, then they released Barabbas to him, right? The crowd said, we want you to free this this murderer. We want you to kill Jesus. But so they released Barabbas to the crowd, but he had Jesus flogged. Now understand what flogging was. This This is more than whipping. This is lead balls and pieces of bone and metal that get stuck in the skin. And when they ain't get back, it cuts, it tears flesh. Very graphic, very, very painful and gruesome. So he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified, which again was a horrible way to die. And it says, verse 27, then the governor's soldiers took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him down and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. So they humiliated, they made fun of him, they mocked him, right? This is how they were treating this man. Verse 32 speaks of the crucifixion. It says, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. Now I want you to keep this in mind because in a moment we're going to circle back to it. But it says, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, where they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So again, mocking him, taking his things, beating him, uh, just tormenting him with bitter liquid as he, as he was thirsty, dying. Verse 38, two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, right? Tormenting him, just calling him out, saying he's a fool. Come down from the cross if you were the son of God. 
In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heap insults. Even these men dying next to him were insulting him. Luke 23 has the same story, slightly different take. Verse 35, it says, The people stood standing and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him vinegar and said, If you're the king of Jews, save yourself. And again, it said, There is written the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us, right? Mocking him. But let me tell you this, unless Jesus comes first, we will all face death and likely deal with the deaths of many along the way. And this congregation has certainly experienced a lot of loss over the past two years. In our busy lives and, and hope and medicine and our best attempt at, at healthy lifestyle distract us from the reality, right? We, we forget that we are mortal, but it doesn't change it. Christians in particular seem to struggle to reconcile our biblical knowledge about death with our fear of it, right? We know what we believe. We know it comes next. We know there's nothing to worry about. In fact, it's something to be celebrated, yet we struggle because we still fear, fear it, Right? Yet here's where believers could be a great testimony before the world by facing death with honesty and openly. We can learn much from our Savior about how to do this by considering how he coped with his own death. And we learn from Jesus in the garden that he wanted the cup of death to pass, but deferred to God, God's will over his own, right? We, even Jesus said, you know, I don't, I don't want to go through this. Matthew 26 39 says, he went on a little further into the garden and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, right? I know what I'm here for, I know what you're doing, but, but God, I don't want it. But then he does the mature thing. He says, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And that is so hard. When you say, I want that job, I want that relationship, I want this, I want that. And they say, but... God, I know you know what's best for me. Your will, not mine. Jesus not only prayed in submission to God, but he lived that way. He says, for I come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And we learn even more from the things Jesus said on the cross. Remarkably, many of Jesus' final statements were directed at caring for others. Right? Rather than becoming wrapped up and just consumed in self-pity as he suffered, arguably the most brutal and certainly the most unjust punishment and death in history, our Lord Jesus continued to show care for others. I found seven statements made during the crucifixion and his death. Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Probably heard that before. With his clear beliefs and teachings on forgiveness, should we be surprised that Jesus asked forgiveness for the people who are executing him? That is exactly what he'd been teaching. And here he was absolutely being tested. And he says, Father, forgive them. This is completely opposite of, of how many of us choose to respond when we feel retreated unjustly. And I admit, I struggle with this one, right? But we act like Jesus when we forgive those who have wronged us. A second statement also found in Luke 23, 39 through 43. 43, 
I've alluded to this earlier, it says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, right? He says, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. Then he turned to Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Familiar with that? In this account from Luke, Jesus gives eternal forgiveness, right? The kind that only he can give to a criminal who apparently deserved his death sentence. Even in the midst of his own suffering, Jesus still cared for, ministered to, and delivered the sinner. And that is love and that is service above self. Jesus' third statement, John 19, 26. Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and that is agreed to be John. And he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. In this statement, we find Jesus caring for his mother, Mary, commissioning John to treat her as his own. Jesus models how a part of dying well is to provide for the ongoing financial, physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being for the loved ones after our passing. That's scriptural. It's an example that Jesus gave. On on the, the edge of his own death, in the midst of suffering, he was still looking out for others. And the fourth can be found in Matthew 27, 46, and Mark 15, 34. It said, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? Jesus' own humanity, right, he's, he's human, is on display with the statement. It expresses his immense suffering for our sin as he died. We see that Jesus expresses his struggles to God, and, and as we face struggles in our life that cause us to question the goodness, control, or even the presence of God, we, like Jesus, can share our burdens with him. God has broad shoulders and, and it's okay to shake a fist at him every now and then say, why God, why? And maybe he'll answer, maybe he won't, not in the way you're expecting. But he calls us to come to him honestly like that. A fifth statement from John nineteen twenty eight says, later knowing that everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now Jesus endures physical misery as seen in the words, I thirst, right? He's, He's dehydrated, he's beaten to death, he's bleeding, he's, you know, he's been pierced. And um, this is another comment that fulfills the Old Testament scripture because Psalm 42, 2 talks about a soul thirsting for God, the living God. So, so whether you in- interpret this as Jesus has a physical need for thirst, part of his humanity, or our shared need, the spiritual need for God and the living water of God, both ring true in this statement. And the six, which is a continuation, says, when he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And we're familiar with this dramatic line, it is finished that. And it says, with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So I got a couple things to share on this. What did he finish? And we, we really dove in this in depth last week. From 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul's letter, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That has been completed. That is what's been finished. That he has become sin to relieve us of our burden of sin. 
John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd, Jesus' own words. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He has completed that. And Luke 19, 10, another part of his purpose, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Right, we talked about that last week. It's an ongoing mission. And Luke 4, 18, 19, this is the real statement that captures his purpose. And we, we went through this line by line last week. It says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we talked about the things that oppress us. We may not be slaves as in shackles, but we may be slave to sin or addictions or, or other things that take the, the time and place and energy that God should have in our life. But this line, it is finished. This, this profound line or saying that Jesus spoke was actually a single Greek word. And we talked about this two Easter's ago called tetelestai. The Greek word tetelestai, which means it is finished, right? But it has a deeper, more complex meaning. And I'll tell you two parts of it. First is we often find this in papyrus receipts for taxes recovered. And the, the word tetelestai means it's been paid in full. So keep that in mind. This has been paid in full. And so when Jesus said it's, it is finished, he meant his redemptive work was completed, right? He's come and he has, he has become the good shepherd. He's laid his life down. He has, he has sought the, the lost and to save them. But it doesn't mean that he was finished, nor does it mean his ministry is finished. We talked extensively again last week about this. He had been made sin for people and had suffered the penalty of God's justice which our sin deserved so that you and I wouldn't suffer under sin any longer so we could have that relationship with God because God is holy. He can't forfeit his holiness, right? So there has to be something that bridges that. Until we figure out how to be sinless ourselves, there's gotta be a bridge and that bridge is Jesus Christ. But it is finished. The telestai is a perfect verb, which means it is an ongoing. It is not, it is finished once and done. It is not finished once and for all time. It is finished and finished and finished over and over and over again, okay? It's hard to understand because I'm not sure we have an action verb that captures that. But when Jesus says it is done, he's saying it is repeatedly done now and over and over again for all time, for all time. We talked about the man from Cyrene, his name was Simon, and he carried the cross for Jesus. And the movie, The Passion of Christ, captured the scene. And there's a bit of a, a dramatic um, oh, or artistic license taken to add a line, but I think the line is really profound, so I wanted to share it. Can you show this clip of video, please? So Jesus has been bringing the cross and, and has just been beaten and nearly to death and has, has fallen, cannot carry the cross anymore. says, what do you want from me? And he says, this criminal can't carry his cross by himself anymore. You will help him. Now get going. I can't do that. It's none of my business. Get someone else. He says, all right, but remember, I'm an innocent man forced to carry the cross of a condemned man. 
He didn't want to be any part of it. That's not his business. But couldn't Jesus say the same thing for each one of us? Okay, I'll do it, right? I'll do it. I want you to take this from me, but I'll do it if that's your will. But I'm an innocent man carrying the cross for a condemned man, woman, generation, right? Luke 23, 46, this is the seventh of his statements. It says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Now, um, I wanna go back to John 10, 17, 18, where he talks about, and, and it's quoted in the movie, The Passion. It says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and to pick it back up. And to pick it back up. This command I received from my father. You see, even in the moment of his death, Jesus remained the one who gave up his life. It said he bowed down his head and he said, I, into your hands I I, you know, commend my, commit my spirit. And one commentary I read on this passage note that this differs from the normal process of death for crucifixion in which the spirit would, would ebb away and then the head would slump forward, right? They would die and then they'd slump forward, but he, he surrendered his life. He slumped forward and, and, and gave up his life. And we learn that Jesus, from Jesus, that there is a time to concede that it is indeed God's will that we or our loved one join him in eternity, and Jesus teaches that he's not yielding to fate or, um, or to death or the devil, but to the loving hands of his father. That's who he's giving. He's committing his spirit. He's not giving up, right? It's the good kind of surrender we're going to talk about next week. And Jesus died willfully with an awareness of surrender and control. What I find is interesting, Jesus often cites scripture. You know, we... We, we think that you know, Jesus came and told us all this new stuff, and more often than not, he was telling us something that we were already told in the First Testament, and he's explaining it, or better yet, he's telling us how to apply it to our lives. And so listen to Psalm 31, and this is a Psalm of David, and we had done this in our Wednesday Bible study not long ago. It says, in you, Lord, I've taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Now, does that echo the sentiment of Jesus, baby in the garden? It says, turn your ear to me, come quickly to my rescue, be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. And since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead me and guide me, right? Your will be done. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, and you are my refuge, right? Was there not a trap set for him? And then he says, into your hands I commit my spirit, deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. That is the psalmist writing that. And Jesus quoting the scriptures, he makes that our prayer. Jesus' knowledge of scripture serves as a model for us to learn for a time when we need to seek comfort, comfort from it. Maybe you've got a, a favorite verse or two and, and don't feel bad if you can't go through and say it's, it's John this or Luke that or First Peter this. If you know what the scripture says and how it speaks to you, I know mine is James 1, 2 through 3. Consider it joy when you face struggles of all kinds, Right? For it's the facing these trials, you develop perseverance. Let it come to full fruition so you can be mature. That's tough. That's tough. I have to lean on that hard sometimes. Find your verse. Find your verse. I think there are two truths that we can learn from, from Jesus' death. First, God hates sin, and we know that. 
Sin hurts the people he loves and the people that we love, right? The cross shows us how ugly sin is. It literally showed the ugliness of, of sin as he was, he was beaten for our sins. And sin caused the death of God's own son. And we deserve the punishment that Jesus accepted on our behalf, okay? God hates the sin. He doesn't hate us. Second, the cross shows us how much God loves us. The symbol of shame has become a symbol of hope for thousands of years. The fact that Jesus, Son of God, was willing to suffer and die for you and me shows that he loves us with a passion that exceeds and overcomes his hatred of sin. Jesus was willing to pay the price. He was willing to suffer torture and death so that he might conquer sin and give us freedom from its grasp and freedom from fear of death. The movie, The Passion Ends, was just a very powerful scene with no words whatsoever. And I just want to use that as we kind of start to wind down here. You may think that the birth of Jesus was the greatest gift ever and certainly was a wonderful Christmas gift but the gift of Easter. See, God wants to give you the best gift that you could possibly imagine. That's an eternal life with him. He desires to give you this eternal life. That's why he gave us the words of John three sixteen through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send a son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And that's why we rejoice in the opportunity to express faith in our Savior by eating the bread that represents his body at communion, by drinking the fruit of the vine, the wine, the juice that represents the new covenant. We rejoice in the opportunity to celebrate not only his death for us, but also that he was resurrected and now lives in us, leading and strengthening us in a life of righteousness through the Holy Spirit, that we have an advocate with a father that can say, I know him, I know her. Let them in. We rejoice that his mission and ministry continue and that he has invited us to partner with him in his mission to seek and save the lost, to live in unity with one another and to establish wholeness in an otherwise fragment in the world. And let's make that our prayer. Would you join me, please? Heavenly Father, what more can we say than, than thank you and sorry? We are sorry for what we've done that, that put your son on the cross. But we thank you sincerely for that wonderful gift of grace. And as we take this day to honor his life, his death, and his re, rebirth, his, his new life, we know that we have a new life through him. And as we reflect now on every aspect of his life, his teachings, the stories, the accounts captured in, in scripture, Lord, Help us to remember why he came. And it's for each one of us to make a difference, to save us all, not once and done, but once and for all time. And this is why, Lord, you tell us to take up our cross daily, that when we struggle and stumble and the Lord and the Satan gets in our ear and says, you're not good enough. Doesn't matter how hard you try, you're not gonna get out of this addiction. You're not gonna get rid of this sin. You're not gonna... You're not going to stop, get rid of your pride or, or your anger or, or your envy or your lust. You say, stop, turn to me, repent. 
And that gift is given to us new each day. Father God, we thank you for that. There's nothing more we can say. So help us to be a good steward of this blessing and a good steward of the great commission that tells us to share this good news with others. So in your son's name we pray, amen.